is now at 87%. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the performance of the aviation sector. Speaking at a media briefing in Geneva the other day, the head of the international body IATA, Willie Walsh, described Hong Kong's recovery as stronger than expected. A promising outlook he attributed to increased cooperation between Hong Kong-based airlines and others in the Greater Bay Area. Willie Walsh has also said that the recovery in uh, traffic in and out of mainland China has uh, been uh, relatively strong. And it was revealed that uh, worldwide air traffic has reached uh, 98.2% of pre-COVID levels. Uh, That was in October, although international flights are taking a bit longer to fully recover. Also in aviation news, uh, China's homegrown C919 and ARJ21 jets are to be showcased at Hong Kong International Airport tomorrow. The first time the two passenger aircraft have been flown outside of the mainland's airspace. And there's also a flight passed over Victoria Harbour, scheduled for 10.30am on Saturday. Meanwhile, Hong Kong's flagship carrier Cathay Pacific has just welcomed its first batch of partially locally trained pilot graduates, in a move analysts say is part of the airline's goal to localise its workforce. So what does all this mean for the future of aviation in Hong Kong? Is 2024 poised to be an auspicious year for the sector? We'll talk to the experts. And after 9.45, we'll uh, hear about the mainland's uh, removal of tourist visa requirements for six nationalities. Uh, that was starting from December the 1st and a 25% visa fee reduction starting from today. You can let us know what you think. If you want to join the conversation, leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us on 233 That's 233 And joining us now in our studio here in Kowloon Tong, we have uh, Roy Ying, who's co-chair for advocacy and policy uh, research at the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resources Management and also Stephen Cheung, who is a founding chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airline Pilots Association and chairman of a private jet operator, Seaplane Hong Kong. Good morning to you both. Good uh, morning. And also joining us on the line is uh, Akim Cherney, who's an associate professor at the Department of Logistics and Maritime Studies at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Um, forgive me for the uh, uh, rather lengthy introduction there, but there, there's quite a lot to... Uh, going on so um maybe we can ask uh, you first um Stephen. so um so we're almost back to globally speaking um to pre-pandemic levels but um, this part of the world is lagging behind a little bit um why do you, why is that well it's the macro uh, economy isn't it i mean with the chinese housing market still recovering uh it's going to take a while um to to recover however the capacity is growing there's ikl conference happening this week in hong kong very exciting times and of course with the runway uh, uh the, the center runway reopening next year uh, there will be a huge capacity increase in terms of runway uh, and and of course this saturday we'll see a fly pass as you mentioned of the cc919 over the victoria Harbour. So, uh, all very overall, very exciting development in Hong Kong for the aviation sector. Mm. Have we got any differences 
between short haul and long haul? Well, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the numbers, um, uh, only, well, pre-COVID, pre-2019, there were 100, over 80 to 100 flights between mainland China and the US. Now there are currently 30 daily flights. So the capacity still uh, needs to recover a little. Uh, So people are, you know, transiting by Hong Kong, uh, 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 Japan to to various places to get to the States. I mean, the the, the two biggest economy in the world, there need to be increasing capacity. Uh, Same thing go with um, the pilot population Um, there is a huge global shortage of professionally trained pilots I mean during COVID-19 a lot of experienced captain retired from the industry so you know it's not just uh, you know Jim talked about there there are a new batch of cadets pilots but it takes years to build those experience and expertise we used to have the best pilots in Hong Kong we need to have them back Mm. all right people trying to lure them out of retirement or are we just Training up the new ones. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's difficult to lure them out of retirement because it's a very stressful job uh, to, to begin with. The second thing is uh, it, it's pretty tough uh, uh, to, to, to lure them back out of their, their, their retirement. Uh, but some, some has joined the industry again. I mean, I, but again, the competition is very tough. When you have U.S. carrier paying 300000 U.S. for, for uh, a, a, a trained airline pilot, um, it's difficult to compete in this environment. Mm. What, what do you think, uh, Roy Ying? What do you think about these figures and what, what are the Im- implications for employment in the sector? Well, I think it's good news for young people who want to join the aviation sector as pilots. Uh, but I do agree with Stephen. Um, we used to have something like 3,800 pilots in Hong Kong and uh, we now have about 2,400. So it's quite a lot less. We lost a third. Yeah, and... Uh, Cathay Pacific has pledged to train 400 pilots a year, um, so 800 in two years, still not enough. And yet, remember, these are cadets with very little flying experience uh, versus the ones that we lost who are the trained and professionally Good experienced. 15, 20 year yeah. experience. Right. So, so uh, I, while I do agree it's exciting time for uh, capacity building, but in the short maybe even the medium term, there needs to be some bridging gaps. And uh, the government is trying to do something uh, by helping um, people to be trained up through the Maritimes and Aviation Training Fund. But again, this takes time. Um, so um, I'm actually quite, quite pleased to see that uh, the government is trying to do something uh, by um, allowing uh, the transport sector, including the aviation, to import labour, and uh, and Cathay Pacific, I believe, has taken advantage of that uh, to have hired a few cadets from the mainland. How are we doing on cargo? That's been big for us in the past. Well, we're still leading in the world. I mean, cargo is still our bread and butter for the Hong Kong market. Uh, But again, the market has recovered with the bellow cargo because a lot of the passenger aircraft have stopped flying during COVID. So the capacity has uh, increased. But I mean, export, if you look at the export numbers in Hong Kong, it has been steadily decreasing uh, uh, due to the macro environment. Uh, But um, the capacity is definitely back uh, with passenger traffic uh, coming in and out of Hong Kong and, 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 and cargo has steadily been, 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 or capacity has been growing. Because I noticed that Cathay uh, financial results are good and they pay back a big chunk of money to the government uh, to get uh, out of those preference shares, which cost them a, a lot in terms of uh, interest dividends and so on. Well, absolutely. I mean, this, this is good news for taxpayer. Mm.
Well, let's bring in uh, Akim Cherney from Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Good morning to you. Yeah, good morning. So to what extent do you think this, the, the, the shortage of uh, cabin crew is going to hold back the full recovery of uh, aviation in this part of the world? And, what, and, and what, what can be done about it? I mean, it's not just, it's not just Cathay, it's not just the local airlines, it's uh, airlines internationally are, are competing for pilots, aren't they? Well, yes. I mean, the pilots, as far as I understand, there will be uh, in the coming 10 years around 250,000 pilots needed in order to uh, sort of satisfy the, uh, the, the demand. But what we actually also uh, recognize is, uh, you know, we have a program in aviation management and logistics until now we have one that will be retitled aviation management and finance so companies sometimes they they come to us and tell us oh we need uh, stuff and can you please help us uh, get some applications from your from your students and this is certainly something that we see right now increasing uh, from companies and we're talking about pilots but we also need like the ground stuff we need the cabin crew and so on and so forth uh, as far as I can tell there is a there is a, a huge shortage uh, there and a high demand for for uh, these kind of uh, uh, this, this kind of stuff. Do you think some people? Uh, good morning. Do you think some people are maybe still a bit cautious about going back into aviation because they saw how quickly people <laughs> were laid off last time round? Oh, I, yes, I, I can tell there in the in the past and in the in the past years, certainly we observe that uh, especially the young talents seem to be more cautious about, you know, thinking about a career in in aviation. Um, but typically, uh, you know, once the numbers are getting better, uh, then uh, then you know they the young young people are also changing their mind. And this is what we are seeing right now. Definitely, the interest in in our program has uh, substantially uh, increased. Uh, we also see that um, the um, yeah so. Yeah, so that is actually what we're what we're what we're seeing. Definitely, there is a there is a recovery, and uh, also something that I always try to say, and I guess my the other guests uh, will be uh, confirming this that you know although the aviation industry always have their ups and downs, but. Uh, overall, uh, it's, it is pretty robust. We see a growth in aviation, uh, doubling of the of the global demand for aviation every 15 years. This has been like pretty uh, constantly been the case over the last over the last decade. So in this sense, actually, aviation is quite robust. Although it has been particularly uh, hit particularly hard during the uh, COVID uh, during the COVID period. How are we doing on gender? I remember when the senior pilot at Cathay was a lady because I flew on her plane <laughs> 20 years ago. And uh, that, was, that was quite something because you're expecting, okay, the, the stewardess speaks over the, over the tannoy and, and uh, you're used to that. And then suddenly we've got our senior captain is, is uh, I've got a message for you all, and we're all listening. Well, like, I think there's an increasing number of female pilots uh, and, 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 and um, various uh, colleagues uh, joining the industry. So, you know, it, it, it's a pretty good outlook, I would say. Mm. I, I think out the latest batch, the, uh, the cadets we talked about, I think there, there were 19 men and two women. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Well, Mike, I, I, maybe I could add a bit of a spin to the concerns that you thought people might have on the aviation sector. 
my son is now studying um, university and he's already got his private playing license and he's totally committed. And uh, just the, the the past few years, he saw people were laid off, but still the, the interest, the the passion that people have towards the aviation industry doesn't really stop people from applying. And that's, I mean, Steve, you can probably confirm that these are the kind of people that airlines want to fly because once you're a pilot, they want you to fly until you retire. Well, absolutely. But I think, um, uh, let me put it this way. There's no shortage of talent who want to join the aviation industry. But for the airline around the world, we want to hire the best people because ultimately those epaulets that are on our shoulders, they're responsible for lives and the safety of the equipment and the passenger and crew. So we need to hire the right people and the right talent. And, and in, in terms of training capacity, that is where the bottleneck is. Right, you need to train up existing pilots and new pilots going into the simulator, get them flying and get their sector in. So there's a huge shortage of actual training captain and simulator uh, capacity uh, in Hong Kong and in the region. So that's the biggest, uh, um, I would say, the biggest challenge for for airline in, uh, in Hong Kong and in Southeast Asia. Because many years ago, aviation was the glamour job. I think it still is. All right, <laughs> your, your sense is that. That feeling is coming back, and it's uh, strong. Well, absolutely, and, and and you know, if you look at the national policy as part of the fourteen five years plan, the national government want to turn Hong Kong as the premier hub for the Greater mm. Bay Area mm. and beyond. Mm. So, you know, the, the opportunity is here. But what we need to step up the game is for all the training facilities, universities in Hong Kong Academy VTC, to have more resources and support from the industry and the government to help them train, because airlines should be training uh, uh, employees, but. At the same time, we can transfer some of the responsibilities and talent into the local university institutional to help the industry grow. I mean, if you if you if you look at the overall space, we don't just need pilots and and cabin crew. We need professionals. So aircraft leasing industry. When C Y Lung was the chief executive, he wanted to grow Hong Kong as the aviation hub for aircraft financing and uh, uh, aircraft leasing. Where are we today? We're growing, but we're not growing fast enough. As fast as places like Dublin, Ireland. How are we doing on ground crew? The support sector. The, you mean uh, the baggage uh, handlers? You mean uh, the, uh, the check-in to... people, the baggage, yeah. the cargo? Well, uh, my first job is Jardine Aviation Services, <laughs> so I, I know a little bit about that. Um, they are they're also struggling uh, in terms of recruitment. Um, they during COVID, the the number of staff became one third of what it was, and now they have to hire something ridiculous like three four hundred people a, a month just to be able to meet the demands of... Um, I wouldn't work, want to work in HR. Yeah, I don't. don't. <laughs> I mean, HR is um, doing everything they can. They go to Zhuhai every week to interview people mm -hmm. and they are now having to um, to not just recruit from uh, from the mainland, but also make sure that uh, there's a, a facilities in, in in the mainland so they could get, get the best people from all over China so they can uh, get them in. Uh, to Hong Kong. There are huge logistic uh, challenges that they're going through, but I think it's a good problem to have. Um <laughs> well, I th yeah, compared to three, four years ago, it's a great problem to have. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I think I think there is a few full full capacity. I mean, a full, almost a full workforce in Hong Kong, right? So it, it's difficult to attract local youngsters. You know, earning a similar amount of money working in Central and Kowloon. Why would you spend an hour applying for a job that works in the airport, which is so far away? And then on the, on top of that, you know, you, you're spending you know a huge chunk of money on commuting, not just time.
If I may add, yeah. I, my hope, uh, I'm, my background is economics, so I believe in supply and demand. And if there is a shortage in the supply of uh, of, of ground stuff, that my hope is that uh, companies at some point in time are going to uh, increase the salaries and make it more attractive for the young talents who basically join uh, aviation and, you know, have this extra uh, hour of traveling to the airport, which is which is an issue. Mm. Uh, but here's another benefit of. Of, of Hong Kong uh, and this is like its position in the Greater Bay Area. It's not just because this is uh, one of the big factors when it comes to boosting air cargo, but also it gives an opportunity to hire some uh, stuff, uh, for instance, uh, in the mainland. And this can help also uh, the Hong Kong aviation industry to basically grow as it you know, wants to grow. I mean, that, that's happening, isn't it? I mean, Cathay Pacific is looking to the mainland for for cabin crew, for instance. I believe mm. that's that's the case. Mm. Yeah. Do you, do you, I mean, do you think the, the the job of a flight attendant is as appealing as it was um, before the pandemic? I mean, um, pay rates were reduced uh, considerably, weren't they? Uh, I maybe I I don't know exactly how high the the pay rates are. Maybe the other um, uh, participants know much uh, know more about it. But I do believe that um, there you know I think there is something. A cabin crew is typically uh, an area that where the salaries are not too high as far as I understand. It's still very attractive because people like the adventure and are passionate for for aviation. Maybe there's some room for for uh, uh, you know, mm. for some better conditions there. Mm. What, 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 what do you reckon, Stephen? Uh, the, the job, the job is it still as appealing? Well, as well, absolutely. I mean, the the lifestyle of traveling. I mean, working mm. as a crew, it's a lifestyle rather than mm. a job, mm. right? Because you, you you don't have a normal nine to five. You 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 wake up in different city every day. But it's very hard on the body. You must say, you know, the 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 roster has changed significantly from where you know aviation has started in Hong Kong. People used to have five six day layover in in, in London. Now mm. you would probably have twenty four hours or, yeah. or forty eight hours. So, you know, because of course, it's just simply the competitive landscape. We're not competing with airlines in Hong Kong. We're competing with the likes of Emirates, uh, 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 Qatar, where they have fuel subsidies. So it's a very challenging market to operate with, with the war in Russia, with the war in in in, 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 in the Middle East. Um, the fuel prices are going up. We, we see a downward trend uh, lately, but it's a very difficult uh, macro environment, not just in, in the greater China area, but also globally. But ultimately, it, it is a very sexy and attractive industry to join for youngsters. How about the mm. private uh, plane market? You mentioned uh, private aviation. Uh, it's it's actually very strong. So uh, the, the demand for Southeast Asia, so places like the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, it has a very a double digit growth rate in terms of private charter. However, um, the half of the uh, private aircraft uh, sector are based in the US. We're talking about two to four hundred planes are based in Asia, uh, in, in Greater China. So there's a huge um, uh, opportunity for uh, a, a business jet um, uh, market in, in in Southeast Asia. Has there a capacity in the airports? Uh, no, <laughs> so so that's always been the struggle. And Hong Kong, um, it's it's one of the most expensive places to operate. Because you're going to have you need slots, and you're going to be competing 
with the airlines with their scheduled flights. Well, absolutely, but not just that, right? You need to get senior business executive into Hong Kong easily so that they can invest into Hong Kong. I mean, if you look at the Western narrative of of, 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 of Hong Kong, it's very negative. I mean, if you look at the news on, on, on BBC, CNN, when you, anything that you do with Hong Kong, it seems like a very scary place to visit. But what we need to do as, as a proud Hong Konger, all of us who's been living here for a long time, we need to tell the story. Actually, come and visit Hong Kong and see. And we need to make those um, uh, um, um, usually uh, yachts and private jet are frowned upon. But we are a city that do business, that compete with Singapore. We need to make it as easy for those senior executives to come yes, to Hong Kong. It would help if the State Department in Washington withdrew some of the, or reworded some of the travel advisories. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all right. What are the downsides? What are the negatives? Well, let's talk about human resources. Um, we, we talked about how airlines are plowing resources in training and development talent. And, um, and the government is trying to localize the, the uh, aviation workforce. Well, I agree with that overall, but there's a short-term gap. Uh, especially we know that there's uh, 1,300 pilots left. And isn't there room for... Uh, airlines to think about, hey, maybe in the next four or five years, um, you know, spend some money and recruit some expatriates, which didn't, ex which failed. It, it, Shouldn't we spread our net a bit wider yeah. than just the mainland? Well, absolutely. As a pilot, I mean, we, we fly with people from various nationality. And I see Hong Kong being as successful as the international global hub is because of all the diversity and different culture that we have in Hong Kong. That's why East we meet West works in Hong Kong, right? If you have just all, you know, single nationality. If it's all East. That, well, it, it yeah. doesn't really work, right? Yeah. So we need to encourage more exchange between uh, the US and, and, and Hong Kong, uh, b between the uh, Europe and, and, and Hong Kong, but also Africa so also has a huge opportunity yeah, as well. The, the hackage has to be attractive enough. Absolutely. You, you know, cafe doesn't have expatriate terms anymore. So it's pretty typical to attract people, yes. experienced pilots to want to come and to Hong, Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is still a very relatively expensive place to live in. So, you know, those are the considerations. You know, if I'm earning 5,000 euro as a first officer flying for a European low-cost carrier, and, it, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're paying me 80K uh, in, in Hong Kong, but then you take away the living expenses, suddenly it doesn't make sense. Right. Well, I may, may yes, I interrupt please. a little? Uh, because I'm an expert, actually. I'm an expert. I'm <laughs> coming originally from, from, from Germany. Right. And I'm in Hong Kong now since 2015. And I love it. You know, I, and everyone who comes to Hong Kong, uh, my family and friends, whenever they visit Hong Kong, they love it. It's, it's, a, it's a great place. Yes, it's true. Uh, some things are a little more expensive, such as uh, living cost. Uh, uh, but then lots of other things are very convenient. I mean, uh, let's, let's, let's take public transport, food, uh, you know, in terms of leisure, uh, possibilities for leisure activities, hiking, you know, seas, island. I, I don't know. There's so many things to see. And I, I really totally agree. Uh, Hong Kong is a, is a overall a great place uh, to live. And I feel it's, it should be quite attractive for 
for for for expats. Uh, there's some one other things that I would like to mention, and this is because we now we kind of start, you know you started talking about the negatives, but I think there's still something positive to say, at least for from the airlines perspective. And this is a kind of the recovery in ticket prices, as far as I understand. Uh, overall, the the revenue yield, so to say, that airlines can achieve uh, on operating on the routes are quite high right now. So this is uh, certainly good news, and I guess this is also why airlines can start repaying uh, the support, the financial support that they received uh, from the governments uh, in, in the last year. Uh, ticket prices, I mean, they are high at the moment. Are, are they going to stay high, or would you expect to see them coming down a little bit next I, year? I, I, you know, typically we see a lot of fluctuations there. I, I might... Uh, you know, it's all speculative, but I would say uh, I don't think they're going to stay that high for long. I mean, now we have these on the supply side, we have these shortages and things will be readjusting. Uh, and uh, I, I, I typically, you know, we have we experience the ups and downs and maybe there we are at the peak right now and things will go down a little bit further, uh, you know, with you know, some, you know, in, in Hong Kong with the expansion of the airport, then new airlines coming into the markets, uh, increasing some, you know, competition among among airlines. Uh, and I, I feel this is, uh, you know, and also increasing of the low cost carrier sector, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that has been a little bit short uh, in supply uh, in the past because of, of just there was no capacity uh, uh, growth opportunities for low cost carriers to grow in, in Hong Kong. Uh, so I think this is going to go away and then with the expansion of the airport and then we will uh, see, uh, uh, you know, some drop in ticket price, which is perhaps not such good news for the airlines but of course it's good news for people who want to travel yeah. to Hong Kong uh, for for you know uh, Hong Kongers uh, you know tourists and so on and so forth okay uh, we've got to take a short break uh, for a news uh, summary uh, we'll be back in about uh, three minutes um, a quick look at the weather sunny intervals today it's going to be warm top temperature around 27 degrees it's uh, the outlook uh, uh, sunny intervals uh, tomorrow and warm again during the day it's currently 24 degrees humidity 85 percent and now here is jamie clark with the news district council poll results are still trickling in after delays in polling and vote counting because of a computer glitch in yautin mong south former councillor chris ip from the dab returns to the district council He's joined by Hayward Guan, who received some 6,500 votes, nearly 200 more than Mr Ip. This also means that all three ethnic minority candidates in the entire election this year have bowed out. Election officials have given the final turnout for yesterday's elections. In the directly elected geographical constituency seats, more than 1,193,000 voters cast ballots, representing 27.5% of the electorate. The turnout rate for the district council election District Committee's constituency was just shy of 97% and the Chairman of the Electoral Affairs Commission has apologised to any voters, candidates and anyone affected by a glitch in the electronic voting system which meant voting had to be extended by an hour and a half. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Hi, I'm Captain Blood. Many patients are waiting for my help. Even when there are extreme temperatures or after a storm or heavy rainfall, I am determined to donate blood. If you're planning to visit a country with potential risks of infectious diseases, 
donate blood first before traveling to avoid deferral later. One blood donation can save three lives. Act now and make an appointment via the Hong Kong Blood app. The road harbour crossings will implement time-varying tolls from December 17th. Tolls for private cars and motorcycles vary by time slots and are lower during off-peak hours. Between these time slots, tolls will gradually increase or decrease every two minutes. Taxis' tolls remain at $25 all day, while other commercial vehicles have uniform tolls at $50 all day. Check out the HKE Mobility app or the toll displays at tunnels for real-time tolls. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And welcome back to Backchat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould, and our guests. And we're going to continue our discussion about the uh, the aviation sector. Uh, lots happening, um, lots of uh, elements to this morning's talk. Uh, uh, with us are Roy Ying, who's uh, co-chair of the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resources Management, uh, Stephen Chung, who's a founding chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airlines Association and chairman of the private jet operator Seaplane Hong Kong, and also Akim Cherney, associate professor at the Department of Logistics and Maritime Studies at the Polytechnic. University. Um, just one thing we want to continue with uh, uh, just for a moment. Um, Roy Ying was uh, mentioning it uh, during the break. Uh, um, we have a shortage of pilots, which we talked about uh, earlier on. Is there any way, do you think, um, Akim Cherney, is there any way we can speed up the training and recruitment process? Yes, so the apparently the Hong Kong Aviation Academy has set up a new program. I think they mm. aim for like 100 pilots a year or so uh, in, in training. I think uh, as far as I understand, a lot of pilots are, are coming from like outside Asia and the US, uh, for instance. And that's also, I think, what uh, Stephen Chang was just, just, just mentioning. Uh, I think uh, improve, improving or increasing the the uh, training capacities in Asia uh, to develop their own uh, pilot uh, capacity, I think, uh, would definitely is definitely helpful. And the kind of activities that we are seeing from the Hong Kong Aviation Academy. But, but Roy, you were mentioning also that uh, one a, a, a thousand were trained over a period of th- many years. Yeah, um, Cafe Pacific just had an announcement a couple of weeks ago. The, and in the, in the news clipping, I saw the Cafe Pacific cadet pilot program was running for about 35 years. And uh, throughout the 35 years, a thousand cadets were trained. That's 35 years. And um, <laughs> the Cafe Pacific is now hiring 400 pilots a year, 802 years. And, uh, and they're trying to do all that in two years, uh, close to what they have to accomplish in the last 35 years. Is, I certainly hope technology can help, but uh, I'm not a, no expert in training and development. But uh, ultimately, uh, it's going to be a challenge. Ultimately, experience is hours in the air. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, those are absolutely vital for a safe operation of aircraft because you can learn so much from books. It's the experience that counts. And landing at different airports. Yes, and different weather experience, different airports, uh, different environments, uh, operating environment. You know, you fly to France, air traffic control speak French. <laughs> um, and, and of course, you've got mm. difficult airports to, to, to fly into. Um, uh, and, and those come with hours uh, in the cockpit. Mm. 
And uh, may I may I add, you yeah. have also different mm. types of aircraft. Why the reason why we are talking about this right now is the uh, C919 coming mm. to Hong Kong. Uh, this is a different type of aircraft, and that also may, re as far as I understand, may require some some training, uh, additional training, and uh, for pilots, but also cabin crew and and so on. Mm. Do do, so, do Boeing pilots can they switch easily to Airbus? Well, I mean, I mean, it's two months training, so you can't just switch over. The experience is right. very similar, but the handling of the aircraft is completely different. So the aircraft system, the the the, the for example, uh, the, the the way how you actually handle the aircraft is completely different. So Airbus have a fly-by-wire, uh, Boeing is really just a stick. So, right. you, yeah. so when we bring in the, the these new mainland planes, is that going to be a third stream of? Experience well, absolutely. So, so the 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 the, the plane, um, although a lot of the aircraft are Western parts uh, by individual suppliers, um, the aircraft is quite similar to Airbus. So, right. at least the des design philosophy. Um, so, uh, but yes, you, you you need completely different training. Mm. So, fly by wire, mm. Mm. and and of course, uh, yeah, as we, as we mentioned uh, earlier. So, so this C nine one nine is going to be at the airport tomorrow. And then it's going to be a, a fly past uh, over Victoria Harbour on Saturday. Um, what, 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 obviously, this is a very significant development in the in the mainland aviation sector. Um, what do we know about this? Well, it is absolutely very exciting, right? Uh, it's a new aircraft that's been in development for over 10 years. Uh, I mean, the Chinese aviation industry, we've been building planes for the last 40, 50 years, but it has not been this amount of resources that pour, pour into the industry. It's usually, we um, uh, historically, it was, it was just a copy of a Russian airframe and then re-engineered and, 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 and developed. But this is a completely new design um, uh, and, 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 and it's, as proven by Chinese Eastern operating it's a very reliable aircraft. Which is good in the sense that the, the duopoly, which was global, um, there's now going to be a third runner in the race? Well, I wouldn't be so sure. I think it still needs five to ten years development, right? Because when you introduce a new aircraft, it's the support and the maintenance, the parts that you have globally. You need to have trained and certified engineer who right. can repair those aircraft. It's the whole supporting Absolutely. environment. Well, it's easy to sell the package, right? It's, yeah. e it's easy to sell the aircraft, but the after support for the aircraft, the ongoing daily maintenance, yearly maintenance, that... Um, uh, uh, that would really need capacity building in those areas. It would take time to build up. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, a, a, another development uh, involving new aircraft as well. So, uh, so Cathay Pacific has announced that it's going to buy um, a number of new freighters, uh, the Airbus A350F, uh, and uh, it's going to buy, I think, uh, six initially, place an order for six uh, with the option to um, buy another 20 after that. I mean, as we know, uh, Hong Kong is the world's uh, uh, busiest uh, airport for freight. International. Um, international, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, what, so, so uh, Akim Cherney, how significant is this uh, development, do you think, with the, the, the new aircraft incoming? 
Yeah, so uh, let me uh, just mention one other aspect which which we talked about before, uh, the C919, and this is the, we talked about the low altitude crossing of the Victoria Harbour. Last time that happened was in 2007, if I'm well uh, uh, correctly informed, with an A380. And the aircraft, the C919, is a very different aircraft, and also the original jet, the ARJ21, is a very different aircraft, because they are short tall aircraft, mm. but they are the biggest category in this in this market. But let's get to freight. Uh, I, you know, one of the serious problems uh, of Cathay Pacific during the pandemic, with a very high demand for air cargo, was the lack of capacity. And why was there a lack of capacity? Because a large chunk of the air cargo is carried in the belly of the passenger aircraft. And since there were there were so few passengers and so so few passenger flights, there was a, just a very substantial drop in capacity. And I feel that within with a with the, the increase in all freighters, this dependence on passenger markets can certainly be uh, reduced, and then potentially lead to some more reliable uh, uh, su- supply in this in this in this area. So in that sense, it's, it can be a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, uh, yeah. So what is the best share of having freighter aircraft relative to uh, air cargo carrying capacity using dedicated freighters versus uh, the belly capacity of aircraft uh, that we will see? We'll see how this how this goes. But right. definitely having having uh, you know more dedicated freighters helps uh, in, in uh, securing the the reliability. But as the passenger the flights aircraft. come back, the belly capacity will, will come back too. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, the 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 thing is, the A three fifty. The purpose of the A three fifty is to replace the gas guzzler, which is the seven four seven, the workhorse of the um, uh, uh, air freighter. Uh, but as those are retiring and Boeing are not building them anymore, um, uh, they're not accepting any new orders for those. Um, you need to have a reasonable replacement, and the three fifty is a very fuel efficient aircraft. So, it, actually, it, it poses a huge opportunity for for capitalism. What about methane as a flight? Powered by methane, the other day. Ah, it's very expensive to. Oh, th- those are the SAF. So uh, yeah, sustainable aviation fuel. So that's another way to to um, uh, have uh, as an alternative for JA1 fuel, um, a more sustainable uh, future for the aviation industry. But uh, again, it's very expensive to extract. Are passengers willing to pay more expensive airfare for more environmental fuel? Um, that's the, you know that's the question you know remain to be seen. Mm. I doubt it. <laughs> uh, th- these Airbus freighters, they're meant to be very uh, fuel efficient, yeah, which are obviously will help towards meeting uh, emissions targets. Well, absolutely. Mm. I mean, they're, they're, they're one of the most fuel efficient aircraft available at the moment. But uh, I'd like to talk about the C919, which is very exciting because Airbus and Boeing have got a 5,000 um, um, backlog each for, for the, uh, uh, the narrow body aircraft. So that's combined 10,000 aircraft. And that restricts the growth of the airline in, 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 in the region. And the C919 could pose a huge opportunity in the near future where they, they could really pose a real competition. Look at the electric car industry. Ten years ago, nobody heard of BYD. Now they are the biggest seller of electric cars. So 
Let's see what it, you know. Let's have this conversation again in five, ten years' time. This is the single uh, aisle. I totally agree. Uh, I totally agree with Stephen. This is, I think, this is a very uh, uh, good analogy with the EV market. And you know, we have other sectors as well, like solar, wind uh, uh, mill uh, production, uh, where like a Chinese, uh, uh, you know, manufacturer stepped in and really, after uh, quite some time, you know, uh, are 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 leading leading the market and. Uh, definitely, I think uh, in a couple of years we will uh, the the Chinese aircraft manufacturers uh, like Comac uh, are are going to catch up, and uh, you know this is good because as we mentioned, this is going to increase you know the 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 competition among aircraft manufacturers, uh, leading overall to a more healthy aviation industry. Others have tried it before. Well, I think Japan made an effort at one time to be a, the third uh, the third ra- horse in the race. That didn't work out for them. Well, absolutely, it's a very complex industry, right? You have to have the the the, the support uh, that comes with uh, uh, operating an aircraft, and if, if the aircraft is unreliable, it's difficult for airline to to have them because if they're parking on the ground, it costs airline money. So we need to have those planes flying twenty four seven, literally, uh, and, and 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 didn't work out for the Japanese manufacturer. So, but you think we think that the mainland economy can. Support well, this development well, long-term basis? It's not just the economy, but the expertise that we have. I mean, China have one of the biggest aviation markets. So we have those engineers, we have those uh, expertise, and now we just need to grow them across Southeast Asia and beyond so the airline can start introducing them into the service. But still early days, so we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to uh, sit back and, and, and see. Mm. Uh, May I add that there is also a very strong commitment from the government, which is, I think, very important and uh, can be a crucial factor for the success of this. Mm. Mm. Oh, oh, and what about the other uh, the other uh, jet, the ARJ twenty one? Um, so that that is a market that is very difficult to um, uh, penetrate. Uh, the reason being is that when you have Cathay flying a wide-body aircraft with 300 mm. seats and they're full to Japan, uh, you know, where would those regional 50-seater uh, or 90-seater plane fit in? That would fit in into Europe or in the US where, you know, they have a feeder service. Uh, but, you know, places like Chongqing, you know, you've got millions of people living there. You know, it's wide-body aircraft but actually the second and third tier or fourth tier city those would work but again it's capacity building i mean the, the, what i foresee in the next 10 years within the asian airspace is it's, it's going to get busier and busier as southeast asia uh, economy grows you know we need to actually talk about as a a, a region how can we have a single unified uh, 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 collaborative uh, airspace or framework to work like the european airspace and wouldn't the high-speed train network actually compete uh, third-tier city to third-tier city? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, if it's more efficient to, to, to take the train, why, why would you, you know, travel an hour uh, to the airport, then, you know, two hours before flight to check in, and then, you know, then do the actual flight? Sometimes, you know, it's more convenient to take the high-speed rail network, but there is a huge opportunity again which is Africa, uh, those places, if the aircraft acquisition cost is, is cheaper, the service is reliable, airline will start looking into those aircrafts. I attended a talk recently by uh, Ethiopian Airlines, and they're very ambitious uh, and very, very optimistic. 
Okay, great. Well, on that note, uh, uh, thank you all very much. We'll have to bring uh, this part of the programme uh, to a close. Uh, um, thanks uh, very much there to Stephen Chung, uh, founding chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airline Pilots Association and chairman of a private jet operator, Seaplane Hong Kong. Thanks very much to Roy Ying, uh, co-chair of the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resources Management. Thank you, and, Jim. And thank you to uh, Akim Cherney, associate professor at the Department of Logistics and Maritime Studies at the Polytechnic University. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello, I'm Jaap van Zweden, music director of the Hong Kong Philharmonic and the New York Philharmonic. To the listeners who tuned into radio with the 95th anniversary of RTHK, the public broadcaster of Hong Kong, I wish you a happy birthday. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. With Hong Kong. And for the final uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's uh, programme, we're turning our attention to another topic, and that is the uh, decision by the uh, mainland to remove uh, tourist visa requirements for uh, six uh, nationalities, uh, Malaysia and uh, five uh, EU countries, and also um, a 25% uh, reduction. Uh, that was from December the 1st, by the way, and then from today there will also be a 25% visa-free uh, sorry, visa fee reduction. Uh, to talk about this, uh, we're joined on the line by Joseph Gregory Mahoney, a Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Uh, Professor Mahoney, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, so uh, these, uh, these EU countries, uh, France... Germany, Italy, the Netherlands uh, and Spain, in addition to Malaysia. Um, do we know why these, uh, these locations specifically were, were chosen for this uh, um, visa-free access? I, I don't think that it's been made clear why no. these countries in particular. Maybe they exchange data. Maybe they have uh, some sort of uh, security arrangement. Maybe that's something related to geopolitics, uh, trying to encourage <laughs> you know, yeah. more cooperation from France and Germany. Um, with, with some of the ongoing uh, uh, difficult negotiations with the EU. Uh, I'm not sure, but, uh, but clearly um, they, they chose these countries as a starting point, but they now appear to be expanding the policy. Right. In the past, China's been very careful to uh, pursue reciprocity. That is, if you require a visa for my people, I'm going to require a visa for your people, um, and uh, there might be some difference in the length. Uh, your guys can get 60 days, maybe you only give mine 30 days, but nonetheless there's a degree of reciprocity. Uh, and the, the case of the six countries, that's been dropped, hasn't it? Yeah, so let's put this in context. Uh, first, as, as, uh, as you've said, uh, the general principle of re uh, reciprocity is that, uh, you know, do unto others as they do unto you. And uh, we have to note that even before COVID, uh, visa rules were relatively tight in, in large measure because of reciprocity. Uh, second, uh, also, as we know, all, all, almost all visas stopped during the pandemic, and most long-term uh, multi-entry visas uh, were canceled. Uh, third, uh, this year, step-by-step, step, we, we've seen the relaxation of the COVID policies, uh, a process that actually culminated in September, which is, you know, I think a lot more recently than many of us remember. Uh, 
uh, when China resumed issuing all types of visas and also simplified uh, the application. Uh, uh, for example, uh, applicants were no longer uh, required to list their travel history for the past five years and only had to uh, provide uh, the, the, the highest level of education achieved. Uh, but fourth, uh, this process over the year was, was frustrated in some respects by other countries uh, actually tightening uh, visa restrictions uh, against Chinese nationalists uh, as China was loosening, which then starts, you know, um, keying up uh, uh, this harmful uh, downward spir spiral of reciprocity. Now, for a number of reasons, um, uh, uh, likely uh, a quick rebound of visits uh, didn't happen this year, and, and there are many possible explanations for this. Uh, uh, first, many of the, the policies had been changing throughout the year. Many visitors simply didn't plan to visit uh, China uh, due to the travel uncertainties. Uh, second, uh, the number of airline flights available has only recently started returning to only half of the pre-COVID levels, uh, this between uh, the U.S. and China uh, especially. Uh, and third, of course, we know that anti-China narratives uh, 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 especially uh, in the West, including travel advisories from the State Department, had damaged uh, the China brand. Uh, and as we've already noted, uh, the principle of reciprocity was increasingly perhaps a, a dead end, uh, one that favored countries that probably want some measure of decoupling, uh, contrary to uh, Beijing's uh, repeated emphasis this year of rebuilding ties by promoting uh, more people-to-people uh, -people exchanges. So, you know, last month, uh, with the objective of encouraging uh, more visits, uh, as you've noted, the policy started loosening for those five European countries plus Malaysia. Uh, and this followed uh, easing other uh, country-specific uh, restrictions. For example, in September, uh, dropping the requirement that Indian travels provide uh, biometric data, including uh, fingerprints, uh, with these applications, at least until the end of this year. So, um, in fact, I think we should also note that the fingerprint requirement was already superfluous because they, they collect fingerprints upon arrival. But I think, uh, in, in part, uh, we can say that in, in some respects, reciprocity has uh, been overtaken by increasing uh, competition. Uh, uh, for example, Thailand initiated a visa waiver program for Chinese tourists in September. Um, uh, we've already mentioned the, the, the policy that followed with China with the six countries. And now we've seen uh, this trend being followed by still others, including Indonesia, which announced a few days ago that it's waiving visas now for a number of uh, select countries, uh, countries. So does this mean that uh, reciprocity is completely dead? Uh, I don't think so, unfortunately. Uh, reciprocity uh, still appears to be guiding some uh, uh, relationships, uh, most notably the, the China-U.S. relationship. So is this going to mostly give a boost to uh, tourism or business travel or both, do you think? Well, I, I think that uh, from what we've seen, I don't think we've seen a breakout in the numbers with, with respect to tourism or business. I, I think clearly both of those are desired. Uh, Beijing did report uh, that following the relaxations that started last month uh, with those six countries that they saw an immediate increase in visitors uh, with a daily average uh, uh, from uh, starting from November 30 up 39% uh, uh, from those uh, six affected countries with uh, more than a third arriving uh, uh, visa-free. And I think that that encouraging data uh, has given uh, some empirical uh, grounding for the expansion of the policy that we're now uh, uh, starting to see. Do you, do you think mm -hmm. China's example will encourage other companies to maybe look again at their requirements? You know, that's. I, 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 I think clearly we are in a cycle of increasing competition where a number of countries, as I've noted already, China, Indonesia and, and Thailand, are dropping restrictions and trying to encourage um, uh, both uh, t uh, tourism and, and business visits. 
Um, but you know, if we look, if we if we give a cursory look at at what's happening in in the U.S., I don't see any relaxations happening, and um, we see sort of a, a tightening of immigration policies, not not specifically related to tourism or, or business visits, but a general tightening of uh, immigration policies still in Australia. So, um, it may be that uh, Asia versus the West, or there's some other logic to it. Um, uh, that, that these divides are starting to widen, but um, right. uh, I think I think the concern is that uh, I think one concern that's kind of uh, haunting Beijing is that with this increase in flights, you know, we know that there are a lot of Chinese who want to go to the United States, but there's there's not a, there's not a clear indication that a lot of Americans want to uh, 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 come to China, and um, you know, China pays attention to to that type of inequality. Um, and uh, other countries are, are certainly paying attention to the need to attract uh, visits in a time of, uh, of global economic uncertainty and increasing competition. And of course, um, uh, domestic politics, you mentioned the US, Australia, I guess the UK as well. Um, immigration is a hot button issue. That's true, and you know it's also it's also always a hot button issue in China. You know, I, I, there, China you can't evenly divide it into those who support or those who oppose. But there are definitely people who in China who are much more internationalist in their perspective, and and certainly those who are more isolationist or even xenophobes. And so uh, I think you know one of the things that that ultimately um, uh, it's not just reciprocity that that has an impact on these policies, but also you know if if we have some well-publicized cases of uh, trouble, of, of troubling visitors who come because of these policies, then we're going to see uh, muckraking propagated by people who oppose uh, foreigners coming to China. And this will put uh, pressure on, on the Chinese government to, to uh, be a little more cautious. But, you know, I think the real key is that uh, over the last several years, China has become so much more sophisticated in terms of, of uh, how all of its systems, all of its uh, security systems are integrated. Uh, and, and as I've said, you know, the way they collect fingerprints upon arrival. Um, and you know, I, to, to give another example, I, was, I recently uh, went to, to Hong Kong, and, you know, it's just incredibly convenient entry into Hong Kong. And I say that, of course, as a U.S. citizen, I know that other people face uh, more difficulties. But, you know, I think it took 10 seconds to go through border control with, through the digital uh, system crossing overland. Um, so, you know, all of that can be done now uh, in, in secure and safe ways using technology. And Beijing is starting to install those types of capacities, as I've seen in some of the ports. Um, so it, it may also be that technology and integration of systems is also making all of this old, uh, um, uh, you know, complicated processes uh, unnecessary. And, and we'll just move in that direction of simplicity and, and letting tech um, um, uh, replace a lot of the a lot of the uh, red tape or, or other right. restrictions that we previously encountered. Are the rules consistent throughout the country, or that, is there any regional uh, variation? Well, you know, I think the, the question is, is there more local autonomy? Now, I, I don't have that level of policy insight, but my impression is not uh, that we don't see that, that kind of local autonomy like we saw a decade ago. Uh, and we don't see it in, in terms of uh, uh, visas, uh, and, and we don't see it uh, as we see it, say, uh, in other areas, for example, uh, local economic policymaking. Now, there's certainly more national direction, and as I've noted, system uh, integration that, that is standardizing policymaking related to immigration. But there, there uh, remains, it seems, some local autonomy for, for example, uh, uh, entry exit bureaus who make visa extension or renewal decisions uh, which, by some anecdotal evidence, appear to have relaxed. 
and because China is always uh, being driven by numbers, uh, KPI, whatever you want to call them, uh, we can expect that these policies will be encouraged at the national and local levels as long as you know these positives remain visit uh, these these visits remain positive. Okay, that's great. Uh, thank you uh, very much uh, for sharing your insights with us uh, on this morning's programme. That was uh, Joseph Gregory Mahoney, a Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Um, thanks to the listeners and thanks very much to our this morning's uh, guest presenter, Mike Rouse. Two fun topics. Yeah, interesting show. Great. So, yeah, we learned a lot about um, aviation as well, didn't we? Um, so stay with us because um, coming up is a news summary followed by the brunch.